Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. This week we've teamed up with a great show called Knowing Animals, which looks at animal rights and animal welfare and features conversations with animal study scholars from around the world. This is one of two podcasts on animal welfare in horse racing. This one looks at horse deaths in jump racing and the others about the use of the whip in horse racing. The shows are hosted by Dr Siobhan O'Sullivan from the University of New South Wales in Australia. So, over to you Siobhan. Hey guys, welcome to Knowing Animals, the podcast where we talk to animal study scholars about a piece of their work. I'm Siobhan O'Sullivan and I do like knowing animals. Okay, today we're discussing Phil McManus's article, The Construction of Human-Animal Relations and National Jumps Day 2013 at Terapa, Hamilton, New Zealand. The article was co-authored by Rowan Graham and Karen Ruth and is available in the journal New Zealand Geographer, Volume 70, Issue 3, page 190. So welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thanks very much, Siobhan. <laughs> Wonderful, Phil. So can you start by telling us where this article came from? What inspired you? Yes, it was part of a research ARC Discovery Project research grant uh, called Caring for Thoroughbreds, which looks at a number of issues related to uh, horse death, uh, wastage, uh, they call it bre- uh, breeding issues, uh, whipping of racehorses, and also the deaths and injuries in jumps racing. And it's covered five countries, including New Zealand, um, the grants with Paul McGreevy from Vet Science at the University of Sydney, but also Aidan Davidson from Tasmania and um, Sue Roberts from University of Kentucky. So we're in New Zealand looking at this particular event, National Jumps Day, where all the races on this program were jumps races. And as a result of that, on that day, two horses died. Um, and we were interested in how that was reported in the media and um, expressed some concerns about when we saw the way it was reported. It didn't align with what I would expect to see reported. So um, as a result of that, was um, motivated enough to write an article about it. Right, so you weren't there specifically with this article in mind on the day of the run uh, of the no, jump. No, we had no intention of originally writing an article. Um, we're there. It was early in the the research project. The project began in two thousand thirteen. This was September two thousand thirteen. Um, we were there to really scope out the the exercise uh, for you know, interviews later on to get a sense of what was happening on the ground. And then when we, we did see what did happen in New Zealand um, on this day and the way in which it had been reported. Um, I've done previous work on uh, geographies of media and re- media reporting of issues such as climate change. Um, and we'd obviously you know, done work on animal st- uh, studies before and we could see that there was an opportunity here to put forward an alternative point of view about the reporting of this particular um, day's activities. Mm. So could you start by letting listeners know what jumps racing is and the significance that it has in, in New Zealand? Okay, jumps racing um, is racing with thoroughbred horses, so the horses are specially bred um, to race um, and they have to be registered as thoroughbred horses. The jumps racing includes two main forms, there are others, but two main forms are the hurdles and the steeplechases. The hurdles are brushed fences, slightly smaller and of equal height. The steeplechases of uh, heights, varying heights and varying configurations of fences, they're bigger, so uh, the horses generally have to train through hurdles up to the steeplechases. So the the more experienced horses, older horses, will be on the steeplechases. Um, and in New Zealand, it's on both the North and the South Island. In Australia, uh, jumps racing only occurs in Victoria and South Australia. Um, it doesn't occur in other Australian states. And it occur- New Zealand occurs on race tracks and um, is generally part of their winter activity when the, the tracks are softer and the horses can land. So it's generally a winter sport. Um, it also occurs in the UK, Ireland 
and we also looked at America was off racetracks mostly. So that was that's what jumps racing was, and this day was devoted to jumps racing. Right. So jumps racing is often seen as a as a problematic activity. It's quite contested, and as you say, uh, only a couple of parts of Australia still have jumps racing. So you were there on the day, and you saw two horses, or perhaps it was more than two horses, I think, go down, but two were euthanised as a result. Can you describe what you saw? Uh, it was different races. There were two two horses uh, were killed on the day. Other horses did fall, um, and there was one race at the end of the day, which was what's called a flat race, um, but a high weight race. So it was for horses that will eventually go on to, they think, go on to do jumps racing, and the jockeys were... Um, usually bigger um, than the jockeys that race, I guess, on the, the flat in Australia. So they're the sort of jockeys that would ride on the, um, the hurdles and the steeplechases, except this time they did it without fences. And there was, a, there was an accident in that race as well, but no horses were killed. Um, it, one incident happened in front of the grand, uh, pretty much in front of the grandstand area. The other one uh, where the horse was killed happened uh, virtually out of sight on the back straight. It was quite a long way away. Um, it, when a horse goes down, we saw in the, the, race, the first race where a horse was killed, um, a lot of the people were still looking to finish the race. It was a close finish between the horses that stayed up um, and it happened you know, towards the end of the race. And it was quite interesting to watch the crowd reaction is that they first, most people seemed to watch the race and then look back um, and the screen comes out, the green screen comes out and the horses are covered and uh, killed and then they uh, take the horse away, a tractor, a pickup forklift comes and takes the horse's body away um, out of sight. Mm. So it's it's definitely very emotional. You see this sort of thing happening. It's um, I don't think any anybody there wanted to see that sort of thing happening. It's how people react to it afterwards and how they explain it, I think, is really important. Yeah. And so one of the observations you make in the paper is that there was a relatively small number of people there and I think, am I right in thinking that's one of the reasons you thought it was particularly interesting to discuss it? Because if you weren't there on the day, and most people weren't there on the day, you didn't get a chance to see it firsthand, is that right? Absolutely. It's what you what they call an industry day. So it's a day for the industry, racing industry, rather and it was a um, weekend Sunday, rather than um, a day where it's a big carnival event, um, something like flat racing the Melbourne Cup or something equivalent in Australia. So... Uh, a lot of people, most people wouldn't have seen it, it was a small crowd there. Um, in that sense, although it was above ground visible, it's a bit like your pit horses, pit ponies, um, it was out of sight, effectively out of sight for most people in, you know, in the city of Hamilton or anywhere else in New Zealand. So um, even though it wasn't necessarily being hidden, it was effectively out of sight and that's what concerned us because then the way in which people did come to learn about this was through mediation, which is the media, and um, we were then when we did look at what was being written, we were very concerned about the way the media reported this particular day. Mm. So, you looked at three types of media: something that we might call official, so something that was put out by the racing authority. Yes, stewards report, stipendary stewards report, which is the official report of the stewards, um, which details any incidents where there's horses killed or horses um, given not given a fair chance to race or something else occurs. So that is the official stewards report, and that was that was made available to any journalist or anybody else who could read that. Websites. Yeah, and then there was also the traditional media, so the print media, yes. and also social media. Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you you saw when you looked at the traditional media and social media's response? Yeah. Uh, the traditional media uh, pretty much 
describe the day as a day of thrills and spills. Um, they tend to talk about <laughs> the, the jockeys and um, who was dating who. Um, it was, uh, and if, if there was an injury, uh, it was a jockey that was injured, so the horse was actually written out of the story, so a horse could be killed, but that wasn't there, but you'd learn that the jockey had got bruised or something mm. you know, to that effect. Or, um, it was really the horses were made invisible and the horses that died weren't named, uh, whereas the jockey you could work out um, who, what their name was, how long they'd been in Australia, anything, any other details about them. Um, mm. So it was very much you know, putting the human front and centre, uh, the animal, the horse uh, was invisible um, and you'd never know if you just read the media reports that anybody, any horse had been killed on that particular day. Um, the social media response to that was varied. Um, initially, some people did comment about the, um, the cruelty and the, the issues and as a result of that then I think it started to, some of the mainstream journalists and um, other newspapers picked up on it and started to run stories that hey horses did die on this day and that I think changed the, um, the way in which the traditional print media um, then operate um, so the stories started to get a little bit more balanced but the initial uh, response in the print media was the racing journalists were putting out stories that pretty much talked about thrills and spills and um, a few injuries to the jockeys and the j female jockey's boyfriend that sort of thing. Mm. So what does that tell us then or what can we learn from that in relation to say the larger issue of the role that social media might play in helping reconfigure or challenge traditional notions about the human-animal relationship? That's a very good question. It's partly what we're trying to explore. Um, initially, some of the social media, because the social media is partly owned by the um, traditional media, I don't see them as being uh, dichotomous. I think that um, the traditional media has their own social media outlets and they do work through those areas as well. So um, there is certainly potential in social media because of the use of images, for example, um, to create a story where otherwise there would be no story effectively. I think that's what did happen here. Um, but also social media can be reactive, I suppose you could say, and um, they can confirm what's in the print media. Um, there's a, if there's a certain viewpoint that perhaps isn't favouring animals, it can also um, be amplified by the, the use of traditional print media and social media. So I don't see social media as a panacea, but I see it does open up other opportunities. I think animal activists have particularly used um, social media well in the use of images, and it does mean that events such as at Tayarapa um, are no longer confined to what happened on a racetrack that's forgotten. They then can become part of having a life of their own, ongoing life on social media. Mm. And you comment in the article that SAFE, which is a New Zealand-based animal protection agency, was quite involved in being one of those social media voices. I mean, is that important for an organisation that, yes, will never have their own newspaper or anything like that? Yes, absolutely. Any, any group um, organisation that isn't running their own newspaper through social media has another outlet um, to, you know, to put out either opinions or to provide evidence that isn't going to be picked up in the mainstream media and that then can infiltrate into the mainstream media or can be picked up by pol politicians who are making decisions about you know, whether this activity should be continuing. Um, it applies to a whole lot of other issues related to animals, social justice, all sorts of issues. So. I don't think it's exclusively around animals, but I think it is something that, in this case, um, is important. That it does give some uh, sense of rebalancing the resource imbalances between the traditional print media and the big companies that own those organisations, and also the um, you know, perhaps smaller groups that don't have the resources 
um, to raise their issues and to get across their viewpoints. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And so you're a geographer and you speak quite a bit about the role geography might um, play in thinking about, I guess, space and relationships and things like that. Can you say a little bit about what role you think geography does play in the, say, animal studies uh, landscape? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> there's a certain area of um, geography, uh, animal geography, human-animal relations, and I think geographers have been quite active in there, and there's been a number of, in, in the Australian geography scene, a number of conferences and groups operating um, throughout the conferences. I know the Association of American Geographers, same sort of thing. So within geography, this is a growing area. Um, I think geographers are good with working with other disciplines. I think that's one of the things that we have done quite well. We're not insular in that sense. Mm. So it's quite likely we can you know, work with other disciplines. So, for example, work with Paul McGreevy from Vet Science, so mm. project caring for thoroughbreds, um, working with other disciplines um, on other issues, um, anthropologists, etc. no problem whatsoever. And mm. I think that's one thing where, in terms of the... Uh, how geography can contribute. I don't think geography alone is doing it or leading it or should necessarily be doing that. There's a lot geographers can and do learn from other disciplines in the animal studies area. Mm. Uh, but I think geography is one of those disciplines where, especially questioning the human and human geography and that how we define human is clearly in relation to other animals and to particular places where animals can be, can't be, and how we construct other animals, how we construct those places. So I think, yeah, it is important. Mm-hmm. Because your other work has been often about uh, animals and their location and, and urban spaces, things like that, isn't is that right? It is. My first degree was in urban regional planning, then I did environmental studies. So the area of interests, um, environmental management, uh, environmental conflict, but all, and cities, um, conflicts in urban areas, but also nature in the city and the way in which we construct places with animals being involved in those places. Um, and the way in which we construct people, the humans, in relation to animals. So how we identify ourselves, what, what is the human mm. in human geography, it's partly created by our relationships with other species. Mm. Okay, well, we ask all our guests, I ask all guests who come on the uh, podcast to answer five quick questions. So this will be our opportunity to learn more about your research background and your interests, etc. So, Phil, can you recall the first piece of what we might call pro-animal scholarship that you ever read? That's a tough question. I think the one that stands out in my mind is the work of Kay Anderson um, in, um, I think it was the um, Transactions of the Institute of British Geography, and she was uh, talking about Adelaide Zoo, and it was human-animal relations um, there at the Adelaide Zoo, and constructing nature um, through the boundaries of continuing Kay's work, which she's doing work on Australian Aborigines and the way in which they'd been constructed as animals. And so she's continued on to look at um, demarcating boundaries and placing you know, animals. And Adelaide Zoo was an example. So I was probably being surrounded by other work happening at the time, Sarah Watmore, Lorraine Thorne's work, uh, some of you may be familiar with, about um, elephants that came out and uh, Mike Fox, Mike, sorry, try again. Uh, Michael Wood's work on um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, but I didn't quite pick up some of those things, but I did pick up on the Kay Anderson one, so that's the first one I think probably I'd say. Oh, wonderful. So can you then recall the first piece that you wrote yourself? Um, probably the one, I'm not sure how pro-animals you'd say it was, but it was certainly a way of thinking about animals differently for me, and was uh, 2001, there's an article in Rural Society, it's about the Glebe Island Abattoir, and the mm. Glebe Island abattoir uh, for those who don't know used to be um, 
Glebe Island in uh, Sydney Harbour in Roselle. It used to be a separate island. There was an abattoir there before it was joined to the mainland. So, so that those silos, as you come across the Anzac Bridge, mm. um, up until uh, the mid uh, late 19th century, before they started, they built um, the Homebush Abattoir, that was the main supply of meat in Sydney. And I was looking at, the, again, the history of this particular place and how it was a place that had been written out of uh, existence effectively in Sydney's Sydney's history, but was so important for the provision of meat, but also the treatment of animals for, uh, for many decades in Sydney. Um, mm. So that was a, a story where I think the animals, the way in which animals projected that story um, was problematic and um, raised that issue. Yeah, I often speak to my students about animals having once been part of cities, and I often bring up the abattoir, but it's only through your work that I'm even aware that there was that abattoir there. So it really is a very uh, unknown history, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So if you had to name one animal studies scholar who's had a big impact on you, who would it be? Probably Tim Ingold, um, anthropologist, and it's mostly around his work on building and dwelling. And uh, the reasons I think it started to make me think about us as people, as humans differently, um, that other animals, uh, other species do some of the same things that we do um, in terms of you know, the way in which they build, they dwell. Um, that, so I, I started to think about animals differently and from there other things have happened. So initially I'd say it's probably Tim Ingold's work. Oh, wonderful. So what's the most important thing academics can do for animals? I think they can put animals front and centre in some of the work that they do and we try to do that with uh, various books, um, the materials that we've done and to name the animals. So the paper about the jumps racing in Tayrapa names the animals that have been, you know, the two horses that have been mm -hmm. killed, uh, Robert Robin Yangming, um, it's, it's right there. Whereas one of the things that the journalists in that paper didn't do, they deliberately didn't name the animals that have been killed and it's something you find the animals become invisible through, the, uh, through not being named. So I think um, putting animals in the story in a way that they're not a backdrop to the human story or they're not some sort of just for human use only, that then changes the narratives. And I think that's really crucial. Mm, wonderful. So if you had the power to change one thing about the human-non-human -human animal relationship, what would it be? I think it would be about um, what I call distanciation, uh, trying to overcome that where there's a distance between um, humans and animals, and that distance is sometimes uh, desired to avoid the unpleasant aspects of that human-animal relationship. And I'm thinking perhaps of you know, uh, killing animals or um, you know, treating animals in particular ways. So um, we outsource, I think was the word you used yourself, about um, some of the things that as humans we don't like. If we had to do those sort of things, then mm. there'd be, uh, that would change the treatment of animals. Mm. So. Mm. Um, that distance between, that's a mental distance, it's a physical distance, it's all those sort of things, but trying to bring animals and human animals closer together and have to do those activities ourselves, that would change our practices. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So, Phil, what are you working on next? <laughs> now, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Uh, there's a few things happening here. As part of the project, uh, Caring for Thoroughbreds project, um, we've got some art journal articles coming out, so I think that's that's ongoing and hopefully we'll get a book. We haven't organised that yet, but we'd like to get a book coming out of that particular project. Um, there's a book chapter that's coming out, and just a bit of advertising, because I think it's worth advertising. Um, Neil Carr from New Zealand has got a book called Domestic um, Animals and Leisure, and there's a chapter in that called That's Entertainment, which is what I've written that chapter, and with a question mark afterwards. It's talking about animals in leisure, and again, about the horse jumps racing. Yeah. Uh, but it's bigger in terms of thinking about um, human relationships to animals over a whole range of leisure sport activities. Um, 
So I think that's something in tax upon um, Judith Butler's work of precarious lives and use that as a framework for the paper. Um, and the other thing that I'm doing is uh, for the human and um, Han, the human animal network at the University of Sydney, research network at the University of Sydney, um, we've got a book coming out soon, uh, be next year, and that's looking at the more than human, which is um, following up a conference uh, that Sarah Watmore did here, and a number of chapters will be in that book, including one by yourself, Sawan. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So look out for that book. <laughs> and so how can people find out more about your work? Uh, probably through the University of Sydney uh, website, um, that's one area, and if you just search my name, Phil McManus, University of Sydney, it will come up with the various publications. Other ways are to go to the School of Geosciences um, website, and that will also be a link in there for the Phil McManus at the School of Geosciences. But you could also go straight to Google Scholar, my profile is uh, public on Google Scholar, so you can see all the various uh, pieces that have been written over years and a um, number of times citations and follow up on other people who cite that work as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with Google Scholar, so quite a few of the uh, animal study scholars that come on this podcast will have a profile on Google Scholar and it is a really good way, as you say, to see what they've published and also where other people have used that work. So thank you very much, Phil. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you listeners uh, for joining us for Knowing Animals, the podcast where we talk to animal study scholars about their work. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at knowing underscore animals or on Facebook at knowing animals past and present. Also, don't forget to tell others about us and to review the podcast on iTunes. Reviews make it easier for others to find us. I'm Siobhan O'Sullivan and I do like knowing animals. See you. If you want to go to the website of Knowing Animals, Knowing Animals, that's all one word, knowinganimals.libsyn, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. <laughs>